couple of things before we look at the word this morning. Do be praying for the Josephs while they're absent. They needed a rest, uh, and and they're getting one. And I'm I'm thankful to be able to be a help with that uh, in some small way at least. And I hope that you'll be praying for them. I kind of talked to my dad a little bit this morning, and uh, I don't think he understood quite all that, that Damon does. But with uh, with his part-time job that he still works at, with pastoring the church and with family, he has a load, and um, so does she. Um, don't don't forget her either, uh, because uh, there are issues that come up with a pastor's wife that probably only a pastor's wife understands. So be praying for them while they're gone. And then be praying for some folks here that are sick, injured. Um, your brother that has been faithfully coming for a little while has got a really bad cough, we don't know why. Um, I know Willis broke his arm, so I'll be praying for him. And then um, uh, others as well. Uh, we, we know a 42-year-old young man that, I hate to admit this, but <clears throat> I met him when he was much, much younger than 42, like when he was a, almost newborn. And um, he's on a ventilator right now. No comorbidities, anything like that, but he's on a ventilator. and. Um, so there, there are aspects of this COVID that are still troubling, and there are just other things going on in people's lives that we want to be praying for them. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 1 in your Bibles. But let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before your throne of grace, we are in great need of that grace. We need it in the physical realm. We need your blessing to keep us healthy or to heal us when we are sick or injured. So we pray for those this morning in this congregation who are dealing with some kind of sickness. Ask that you'd raise them up and encourage them any dealing with injury, like I, I don't know of old families, but I know Willis did break his, his arm. And we would pray, Lord, that um, you would ease the pain for him and that you would raise him up and that he would soon be able to use that arm well again. And Lord, help us to not take for granted the good health that you do give us, but to thank you for it and to use that good health in your service. We pray, Father, for this time in your word. Open our eyes to your truth. May we be encouraged to focus our attention on Christ Jesus, our Lord, so that in the midst of whatever trials come our way, we will know where to look to be encouraged. Open your truth this morning to our eyes and hearts. And may it impact us for the glory of Christ both today and for the remainder of our lives. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> we are, and it almost seems trite to say this, living in, for the United States, an almost unprecedented time. That which once raised pride in our hearts, if that word can be used in a proper fashion or in a, in a good way, now in many cases brings mourning. Because there's a great deal of sadness that is a part of our nation right now. And it's already been mentioned brothers and sisters in Christ in foreign places are losing their lives on this earth. 
something that we have not experienced certainly in this country. But in some cases I fear because of some things that we have done in this country. We mentioned last week that we are living in a culture that has gone basically insane. And we gave us the classic example of that is the doctor who delivers a baby, it seems today, cannot raise that baby up and say, it's a... and they stop. And if you're a doctor and you can't tell if it's a boy or a girl, maybe you should get out of the medical profession. To not be able to say that a baby who is born is a boy or a girl when you look at that child is insanity. But that is where our culture is. And in the midst of a culture like that, what are we to do? Where are we to go? Well, let me turn your attention here to 1 John, the first chapter. I'm going to read the entire first chapter. I'm only going to focus in really on the second verse of the chapter, but I want to keep it in context, and so I want to read the entire first chapter. The Apostle John is writing, and he says this, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life." The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Before I read the remainder of this chapter, what contrast that is to our current age, where the darkness is so obvious, so prevalent. But in Christ, there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship... John goes on and says, with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Now there's a tremendous contrast between Christ and us here. Christ, the one in whom there is no darkness, and us who dwelt in darkness. Because the culture in which we live is the culture from which we have been redeemed. The culture of which we were a part. And you may look at your life and say, well, I was never really that much a part of this wicked culture. And that's probably an underestimation of just how guilty you and I really are. reading in a in a book I have a wedding that I'm going to be performing hopefully at least at the end of October and I was reading in a book uh, on premarital counseling which is really quite good and uh, one of the questions that was asked was for them to estimate the love they had for their fiance and then for them to estimate their fiance's love for them And I got to cheat a little because in the back of the book, the mentor or whoever is the discipler 
the one who's doing the counseling get, is supposed to read this section and, and the author of the book made this statement. He said, you know, most couples will probably put something like seven or eight down there because they're trying to be humble because they really believe they're a nine or ten and probably a ten. He said, you want to know what the reality is? They might be a three. And if you've been married for very long, you would admit, I hope at least, that your love for your spouse has grown over the years and that you love him or her much more than you did when you first married. It's difficult for a young couple to see that when they're still in this stage of if anybody else is around or the most beautiful scenery that's ever existed, all they can do is look at each other. If we're not careful, we will greatly overestimate what we think is goodness in our own heart. Where truly, our hearts are so wicked, we can't conceive of how evil they really are. And so if we say we have no sin, even after our salvation, we're lying. It's just not true. Christ, however, is the light. He is the sinless one. And I want us to look at Him. I want us to think about Christ. Because in the midst of all of this trouble, in the midst of all of this difficulty in the midst of the world seeming to collapse around us, if we don't have an anchor, and if that anchor is not steady and sturdy, and I would go on to say if that anchor is not infallible, as was Christ, then we will be tossed about and we will crash on the shore. Now, What are you eager to say? What are you eager to talk about? What are you in your life the most enthusiastic about? I haven't heard too many people here talk about sports. I grew up in sports crazy people. I still tell people I bleed orange and I've been bleeding a lot over the last few years. But if that's the thing that's most important to me, if that's the thing I'm most enthusiastic about, I've got a serious problem. So let me ask a little more pointedly, are you excited about worshiping Christ? Are you excited about worshiping the Lord? Are you enthusiastic about serving Him, about living your life for His glory? When we come to 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, John reveals that he is preeminently excited about honoring Christ and that he is most interested in serving Christ. That's his life. And he desires that the minds and hearts of the people to whom he writes likewise be focused on the Lord Jesus. This is where our focus belongs. And so he says this, beginning in verse 1 again, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. How do you approach the Lord Jesus? And how should you approach Him? Do you and I come before Him with the worshipful hearts and minds of a man like John? Do we take our worship as seriously as we should? Consider what the Bible says about a proper approach to God. 
And I hear things about this all the time. And there's, there are debates raging about how we should worship. Well, what does Scripture actually say? And I don't have time to give the full indications of what Scripture would teach on this. But one of the things that becomes very clear is that we ought to be serious about our worship, sober and somber about our worship, as well as celebratory in our worship. Solomon said this concerning coming before God in Psalm 72.11, May all kings fall down before Him, all nations serve Him. In 1 Kings 8.5, this same Solomon is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, and we read this, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the Ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Prophet Nahum says, The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. When I read that passage, I'm reminded of the children of Israel before the mountain at Sinai. And when God, in the form of a cloud, came down on that mountain, the ground trembled at his presence. Micah gives this instruction on approaching God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? When we come into the presence of God, we come humbly. You and I cannot come in with our pride. And think about what Scripture says when heaven actually becomes the reality for us. We get a picture into the worship that goes on in heaven in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. John the same apostle who writes this letter that we're looking at says this. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of, and were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the, four, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things and by Your will they exist and were created. If you look at the next chapter in chapter 5, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. This is talking about the Son of God who died and rose again. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever. This is the pattern of worship for the Lamb of God. And it continues throughout the book of Revelation in that way. 
And I think it will surely continue throughout eternity. So as you and I consider 1 John 1-2, it will be good to realize that John's words flow from a heart that was not waiting until he got to heaven to begin worshiping and praising the Redeemer. His words are filled with passion. Passion concerning the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so too should your words and my words be filled with passion concerning Christ and for His glory. So as we approach what's said of Christ here, I implore you to shut out the cares of the world and there are many. To come away from the electronic devices that so often occupy your time. To leave off thoughts of what you will do for the rest of the day or plans that need to be made for the week ahead and focus upon Christ and His Word. We should worship Him as we hear of Him. As we learn of Him. There are plenty of cares. And they're not going to go away. In the midst of it all, the one who will hold you steadfast, we sang about that earlier, didn't we not? He will hold me fast. And if Christ doesn't hold us fast, we're going to fall. in this culture. That is really turned against God and his things. John begins the second verse of this letter with the phrase the life was made manifest. The verse here is really kind of a parenthesis in in John's thinking. In fact, if you've got a, a new King James version from which I, I read, you'll see that there's a a long dash after the word life in verse 1, and then there's a long dash after the word us at the end of verse 2. It's really kind of a parenthesis here. John would do this for time, from time to time. You can almost see his heart here. He gets so excited about Christ, he just has to embellish more. He has to remind us. He has to say more about Him. I heard somebody say one time years ago that John referred to himself as the, the one who Jesus loved. And I don't think, and this fellow indicated this as well, I don't think it was that John really thought Jesus loved him more than he did Peter or any of the other apostles. But if you can call yourself the one who Jesus loved, why not do it? Is that not amazing? Have we forgotten how amazed we should be that Jesus loves us? Sometimes we need to go back to what originally was not written as a children's song, but kind of became that. And just remember, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And if that's not amazing to you, you need to go back and rethink where you were when Christ reached down and redeemed you. But this verse reveals more about Christ than might be read on the surface. Let's look at it a little bit. And we're going to begin with this, and that is the incarnation of Christ. We find in this verse, the incarnation of Christ, the life was manifested. The life was manifested. In fact, twice in this verse, the apostle speaks of Jesus having been made manifest at the beginning and end of the verse, he says the life was manifested and at the end and was manifested to us. Why would John emphasize this so readily? Well, there's at least two reasons. The first is that he emphasized the real and actual incarnation of Jesus in order to counter the error of the early Gnostics that God would not and could not make Himself a material nature. One writer understood this saying, the trouble which 1 John seeks to combat 
did not come from men who were out to destroy the Christian faith. It actually came from men who thought that they were improving the Christian faith. It came from men whose aim was to make Christianity intellectually respectable. Not much has changed, right? He goes on to say, it came from men who knew the intellectual tendencies and currents of the day and who wished to express Christianity in terms of these current philosophical ideas. It came from men who felt that the time had come for Christianity to come to terms with secular philosophy and with contemporary thought. And again, same problem seems to occur in almost every generation. Some from within the church today seemingly become embarrassed by the miraculous aspects of Jesus' life. And so we've got to explain them away. They fear, for example, that if the virgin birth, the incarnation, the miraculous works, the bodily resurrection are preached, the world will think that the church is being silly and anti-scientific. And they're unwilling to bear the reproach of Christ before a sinful and rebellious world. The Gnostics were seeking to present a Christianity that was acceptable to the world. Whenever and wherever that happens, grave errors will always follow. The world cannot be accommodated within the gospel. There is a second reason for this, I think. John wanted his readers to realize that in Christ we have the great revelation of God. The Greek word used here is phanerao. It means to reveal or to make visible that which could be seen in no other way. The emphasis is on the fact that God, under no obligation, chose to reveal Himself to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. What a privilege it was to witness the person, the works, the words of the Lord Jesus. And John talked about that in verse 1. They had seen Him with their eyes. They had looked upon Him. Their hands had handled Him. What a privilege it is today to know Him, to learn His Word, to be enabled to come into His presence in worship. Do you, do I, do we come into His presence in awe or do we come in with some double-mindedness? Do we focus on Him or are we distracted by the cares and pleasures of the world? God has graciously revealed Himself to us through His Son. It is for us to honor Him for such grace. Now John emphasizes three things about the incarnation here. And by the way, so that you won't completely freak out, the first point of this is going to be by far the longest. All right? We'll get done at least by 15 or 20 after, which is just normal here, right? John emphasizes three things. The first is this, Jesus is life. So in the incarnation, John says, Jesus is life. It is the life who was made manifest. Notice the life was manifested. We're reminded here of his words to his disciples when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Later in the verse, John assures us that this life is eternal. It is eternal life. Now following the fall, people had no ability to get back to God. In fact, that God is distant is clearly taught in the Bible. He is above us. So much so that we can do no righteousness that is ever good enough to earn heaven on our own. 
according to Robert Yarbrough, the momentousness of what John relates is implicit in his claim that he testifies and reports the eternal life that was with the Father. In the religious tradition of both Old Testament and New Testament peoples, a key assertion is the transcendence of God. Transcendence, if you're not familiar with the term, simply, most of you probably are, but simply talks about God's being above us or beyond us, other than us. And both the Old and New Testament speak very clearly to the otherness of God. Yarbrough goes on to say, but with God's loftiness, separateness, and uniqueness, the problem arises as to how sinful humans may connect with Him. But 1 John's opening verses declare that the life, Jesus Christ, who is the substance of His discourse, has an origin with the Father. Given the historical appearance of Christ, John sees the transcendence problem as overcome and Jesus set off as unique among humans. With the coming of Jesus, the God who had been considered to be distant made himself imminent. In Jesus, God came close. In him, the author and source of life came near. There was such a separation and is such a separation that without God's taking the prerogative, without God's doing what He did in Christ, we would never be able to approach God. We would never get back to God. The gulf cannot be spanned by human effort. How amazing that in Christ, God came near. In the Old Testament, God had come to His people, but His presence was represented by the Ark of the Covenant kept behind the veil in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But even there, there was a sense in which God was coming near, but still veiled. The only person that could ever go behind that curtain was the high priest, and that only once a year, and that only with blood. But in Christ, the presence of God became visible in the person of the God-man. I think it might be good here even to remember the greater treatise of John concerning the Incarnation. And that comes in his Gospel. The first 18 verses. And... If you want, in a nutshell, everything John says in his entire gospel, you read it in these first 18 verses. This prologue is so rich, so deep, so wondrous that it explains everything else that comes after it in John's gospel. Look at it. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In other words, without Christ, and, and by the way, this was a big thing with this Gnostic heresy that was going on, the incipient Gnostic heresy that was going on. Christ made all of this. Which means that He made us. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you'll note here that God takes the initiative in all of this. 
Verse 14, the Word became flesh. God came near. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. Keep in mind, that's a very interesting statement there because Jesus physically was younger than John. But He came before John. And of His fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. There are similarities between what John said in the beginning of his Gospel and what he says here. The Son of God was incarnated. He was made manifest. He shows us the Father. And He is life. He is life. The life lost in the fall was made available in the Son to teach otherwise is heresy that results and even demands hell as its end. Would you have life today? Come to Christ. For only in Him is there life. The life was made manifest. A second emphasis of John is this. Jesus is real. The life again was made manifest. The, the apostle once more speaks of the fact that he and the other apostles had seen him. That's verse 1. The heresy impacting the church at this time was a heresy that denied the reality of the incarnation. But John and the other apostles had seen the Lord Jesus. He did have a human body. He did become some man so that he could die. He was able to be the perfect sacrifice for sin because he was truly human. The particular heresy John was addressing was an incipient form of Gnosticism. This incipient Gnosticism actually took on two forms that were quite different but ended in the same place. In fact, all forms of what would become Gnosticism denied the incarnation of Christ in some way, but not in the same way. And so the two primary ways that Jesus' incarnation was denied were referred to as Docetism or Serinthianism. That's Serinthianism, not Corinthianism, all right? Serinthianism. Of Docetism, one commentator said, in the early church, this refusal to admit the reality of the Incarnation took, broadly speaking, two forms. In its most radical and wholesale form, it is called Docetism. The Docetists taught that Jesus only seemed to have a body, and John, that is an extra-biblical treatise known as the Acts of John, is made to say that when Jesus walked, He never left any footprint on the ground. Because His body wasn't real, so He didn't didn't leave footprints. He was basically a ghost. A phantom. Not truly a man. He only appeared to be. And this followed the Gnostics' belief that all matter is evil and so Jesus Christ could not have taken on a material body. The second form of this early Gnostic belief was called Serinthianism. Its founder was a man named Serinthus. Kistemacher, quoting the ancient church father Ignatius, gives us some insight into this man and his ideology. He said, what is the teaching of Serinthus? Arrhenius provides the information when he writes at length. Serinthus, again, a man who was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians taught that the world was not made by the primary God, but by a certain power far separated from him 
and at a distance from that principality who is supreme over the universe and ignorant of him who is above all. He represented Jesus as having not been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Joseph and Mary, according to the ordinary course of human generation, while he nevertheless was more righteous, prudent, and wise than other men. Moreover, after his baptism, Christ descended upon him in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler, and that then he proclaimed the, the unknown father <clears throat> and performed miracles. But, as, but at last, Christ departed from Jesus, and, <clears throat> and that then Jesus suffered and rose again, while Christ remained impassable inasmuch as he was a spiritual being. Now, what's at stake in that kind of teaching? Well, first, Serethus denied the miracle of the virgin conception and birth of Christ. In other words, he denied the incarnation of the God-man. Second, this teaching denies the clear instruction of Matthew's gospel that at the baptism of Christ, it was not the Christ, but the Spirit who came upon Jesus. So it's an attack not only on Christ himself, but an attack on the veracity of the Scriptures. Third, it's a denial of the atoning work or the propitiatory sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Serenthus was teaching that God couldn't suffer, and so for him, the Christ Spirit had to leave the body of Jesus before he could suffer. Other errors could be considered, but these are enough to prove that this error was a false gospel. These teachings stood in direct contradiction to much that is taught in the Bible. Serenthus falls under Paul's condemnation. He is to be accursed because of the false gospel. So both the Docetist and the Serenthians, or the, they, they both denied the incarnation. They both really denied the gospel. Now, this really just flows from the text, but I want to drive this point home. So it's almost going to sound like it's separate, but I'll, I want this to be made clear. And I, I feel like sometimes in a, in a situation like this, I, I'm preaching to the choir. Not, not, the, not the unsaved choir, but the choir that actually already is thinking in some of these terms. But there is a tremendous need for discernment among God's people and the errors against which John was writing here manifest that need. In fact, and here's the point I want to drive home. The argument can be made that a refusal to discern, especially in the areas of vital doctrine, is among the most unloving things in all the world to do. If we do not discern even the most important things, that is the gospel itself, the gospel will finally disappear. And thus souls that should have heard the truth will not hear it. As it is unloving to fail to properly discipline a child, it is unloving to fail to discern truth from error, right from wrong. That's why John would call for discernment, really, in all three of the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In fact, it's interesting, in 2nd John, he basically says, you see these people who are proclaiming false doctrine? Don't even bid them Godspeed. Don't wish them a good day, even, because a good day for them is to convert somebody to their false teachings. And in 3rd John, he says, while you're discerning about that, make sure that you discern also about people who are doing the right thing and support them. Discernment's vital. Now there is a third emphasis here that can be found in this verse concerning the incarnation, and that is that Jesus is from above. Jesus is from above. He was with the Father. They declared that eternal life which was with the Father. The early Gnostics taught that Jesus was not truly a man. Beyond that, as the heresy developed, the teaching came to be that no good God would have created a material world, and so Jesus could not have had a material body, but even more, He could not have been the Creator. 
If he was, he wasn't really the good God. Now think about the amazing fact that this one who came to earth was with the Father. If we're not careful, we'll see him only in his incarnational glory. But we need to remember that the great glory that is Christ was a glory that he had with the Father prior to his incarnation. It was a glory that he prayed for in John 17 verses 1 to 5 that would be reinstated to him following his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And it is that glory to which he has returned. Now it's true that he is our Savior our Lord, our mediator, our bridegroom, our righteousness. But He is equally as truly God glorious from all eternity. He was with the Father. This is John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God came to earth and revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. The man. The second person of the triune God took upon Himself human flesh. Samuel Pierce, who preached back in the 1800s, um, and he, I, I've got his book that is the book of his sermons on 1 John. 93 sermons on 1 John. Um, But he said this, in him, all the essential glory of the Godhead shines forth in the uttermost display and open discovery of the same in the uttermost of divine blessedness so far as it can be made evident and be apprehended by the supernatural faculties of elect angels and elect saints of the human race. He said again, the second person in the essence was with his own will and the will of the Father and the Spirit predestinated to, into creature being and existence. In conjunction with this, he was conceived and brought forth in the vast and eternal designs, counsels, purposes, and will of all the persons of the Godhead before the foundation of the world was laid. And finally, he said, these are the deep things of God. The knowledge of the same will be our food in heaven our feast throughout the ages of eternity. I could wish this to be attended unto and thought deeply on which was with the Father and was manifested in the flesh in the fullness of time. In other words, in the light of the wondrous person of Christ, both prior to and in His incarnation, Pierce implores believers to meditation and to worship. Are you and I really worshiping Christ? Note again, not only the incarnation of Christ, but a second main thing here is the inspiration of the apostles. So we're going to move from the incarnation of Christ to the inspiration of, of the apostles. That's kind of the middle part of this verse. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus had taught His disciples of the Holy Spirit's ministry in their lives. He promised them that they would be blessed with the inspiring work of the Spirit. Our Lord said to them in John 14, 25, and 26, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He promised them the ministry of the Holy Spirit to remind them of everything that He had taught them and to teach them more. Now I know today we have the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit and that's necessary if we're going to really understand the Word of God. But I think primarily this promise is given to the apostles themselves. They would have all needed to, to be reminded of the things that Christ brought before them and through His work produced in them 
and through the work of the Spirit of God who reminds them then and teaches them that which is new and, and complementary to and um, in complete agreement with what Christ taught, they would produce what came to be known as the New Testament. They would lay the foundation upon which the church of all subsequent generations would be built. Again, Samuel Pierce said, the church is said to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Their peculiar blessing was to see Christ in the flesh, to know Him personally, and so to converse with Him as to be fully persuaded that He was the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. These lived when Christ made good His promise of sending down the Holy Spirit, and they were hereby endued with power from on high. They received no part of their knowledge of Christ from the church, but the church received the whole from them. The apostolic writings are the foundation of our faith. By them, it is we who are led through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost into that knowledge of Christ, which is eternal life. So the apostles had revealed to them the glorious person of Christ Jesus our Lord through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that He promised them. Even though they saw Him close up and personal, it was the Spirit who gave them eyes to see. And such is really the case in every age. Jesus, in fact, made it clear that even during His lifetime, that if the disciples were really going to understand, or if they did actually understand, that it was the work of the Spirit of God who was revealing that to them. Matthew 16, 16. Peter has just made his great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ looked at Peter and said, wow, you got it. You're really smart. Is that what Christ did? Now here's what Christ did. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. If you're going to ever understand this, it'll be because God in His grace sends His Spirit to you to illuminate your mind so that you can hear and heed. And it's all of grace. You will truly see Christ when the Holy Spirit gives you true vision or you will not see Him at all. I would just stop here and exhort you and me to pray mightily that we might see. I know that if you have come to faith in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and trusted Him alone, it's because you've been regenerated. It's because the Spirit of God has already been doing the work or has done a work in your life. But that work needs to continue. And we need to pray every time we open our Bibles, every time we hear a sermon preached, every time someone stands to teach Sunday school, that God will reveal Himself to us through His Word. Pray that we can see. When the world seems to become darker and darker, pray that the light shines through that we will see the light and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, and I'm going to go down a real brief rabbit track here because I've got a little time and I'm still going to be done early. How did the Apostle Paul and Silas find the ability to sing at midnight? after having been beaten and thrown into the inner prison in a Philippian jail cell? How did that happen? How is it that in the midst of their pain and even the stocks that they would have been put in would not have been these things where you just stand there like that which could get more than a little uncomfortable after a while but were actually designed to inflict pain? How is it that we find them singing at midnight? 
worshiping the Lord Jesus at the darkest hour. Was it not because their minds, their hearts, their souls were focused on the Lord Jesus Christ? Was that not it? How are we going to get through if some of what seems to be on the horizon actually transpires in our nation? If somebody comes in here and bursts through the door and says, it's shut down, you can't meet anymore? I know it's been about four weeks since Brother Damon has been in the pulpit, but he's going to be the one who's here more than anybody else. How are we going to make it if somebody bursts through the door and comes down the aisle and drags him out? Takes him to jail? It's already happened in Canada. How are we going to survive? And I would say not only survive, but flourish. Because what I see in the life of Paul and Silas in that jail cell is two men who in spite of the pain that had been inflicted upon them and the injustice of it all, could sing to the glory of Christ in the middle of the night. How did that happen? Was it not because their minds, their hearts, their souls were focused upon Christ Himself? That's how that happened. That's how that happened. We don't know what we're facing in the next few weeks and months, years. But Christ is sufficient. Well, we've seen the incarnation of Christ and the inspiration of the apostles. Now I want to look at the instruction of the apostles real quickly. We're not going to spend long here. Again, we want to look at the text itself. I want us to all see how this flows immediately from the text. We look first at the testimony of the apostles. And there are two words that are used to describe the verbal testimony of the apostles here. John said that they testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. We declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father. We bear witness, it says there and declare to you. John Stott gives some good insight into this double emphasis on the proclamation of the truth when he says, testify is the word of experience. Testify is the word of experience, says Stott. In other words, the apostles, and John had mentioned it in verse 1, had seen Him. They had listened to Him. They had personally interacted with Him. And now they were teaching what Christ taught. They were testifying about Him to His glory and they were going to teach what He had taught. That's the word proclaim. It indicates the authority of commission. They were given the authority to instruct others about Christ. To instruct others about His ways, about His commands, about His person. And they did so. And they're still doing so through the written Word of God. If there's a difference between those two words, by the way, that John used to describe the proclamation of the disciples, it's that the first word emphasizes the content of the Gospel, while the second word emphasizes that which results from the proclamation of the Gospel. Now the apostles, it's true, were unique in history. Theirs was the testimony of eyewitnesses, something none of us can do. That does not mean, however, that we're not 
to bear witness to the things that the apostles taught us. One writer said, his privileged life in the presence of the Lord Christ, he's talking about John here, was not a private experience to elevate him above others who were not so blessed, as if he were somehow one of God's favorite sons. Rather, his privilege became the platform for his responsibility and mandate as an apostle and eyewitness to bear witness or testify of the truth and proclaim the gift of eternal life in him to those including his readers who had never seen Jesus. How privileged was John, and yet John wasn't speaking of his privilege to say, look at me. John was saying, look at Christ. Look at the Lord Jesus. And we don't share the privilege of actually seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, but we do share a wondrous relationship with God through faith in Christ. We're privileged to be able to cry out, Abba, Father. We too have a commission from God. And you and I need to understand this. And in some ways, I think if you carry nothing else home with you but this, I want you to remember, when Jesus is truly worshipped, He will best be proclaimed. When Jesus is truly worshipped, He will best be proclaimed. You say, well, what, is, what does that indicate? Well, let me put it this way. And this is not original with me, but, but it's true. The deeper you go in your understanding of God, the more exalted will be your worship. In this part, I'm going to flip that around because the more exalted your worship becomes as you have gone deeper in your understanding of who Christ is, the greater will be your appreciation for who He is. And the greater your appreciation for who Christ is, the more excited you're going to be about talking about Him. The more excited you're going to be about worshiping Him. The more excited you're going to be about worshiping Him, about serving Him about loving Him. John exhorts us to an understanding of who Jesus is so that we can teach others about Him. So I implore you, worship Him. Learn of Him. Witness of Him. May we all be controlled in our worship and work by the Spirit of God of whom Jesus said when He the Spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I pray that that will become or be, or continue to be true of your life and mine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is so much in this text, even more than we've talked about. So much of the glory of Christ here. His incarnation that God in Christ came close. That Christ bridged a chasm that was unable to be bridged by any human effort. That He gave us the ability to cry out, Abba, Father. That, Father, you 
inspired the apostles to leave us this word from which we learn of Christ, from which we are instructed about Christ. May our worship go deeper or our understanding go deeper. Our worship become more and more exalted and as it does so, may our witness to the world increase. For it's in Christ's name and for His glory that we ask it. Amen.